On this second Sunday in Lent, we continue our series on the book of Job by reading from chapter 3, beginning with verse, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping to verse 16 and reading to the end of the chapter. For those following along in the Pew Bibles, you will want to start on page 559 of the Old Testament and then turn to page 560 and pick up at verse 16. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we heard of Job's loss of all his possessions, all his children, and finally, his physical health. Through it all, he remained unemotional, refusing to speak ill against God. Today, Job offers a different response to his suffering. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are free from their masters. Why is light given to one in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it does not come, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way, whom God has fenced in? From my sighing, for my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly, the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. May God add understanding to our reading of the word. I have told this story before. I don't know if I've told the whole story or not. About, my goodness, 32 years ago, uh, with some information, I drove north. I drove as far north as I've ever been in my life into Alberta, Canada. I was headed towards the town where my father's parents grew up. Uh, Emil and Annie Feets left Wetaskiwin, Alberta right after they got married. Uh, and moved down to Washington, and that's why I'm an American, apparently. Uh, I went up there because I knew that my grandfather had had eight siblings, and my grandmother had had four or three sisters, and there are a whole lot of cousins up there. I got a few names from my own aunt, uh, but none of them were feats, and I wanted to meet some more featses. I did not know enough featses in my life. I think that's true of you as well, probably. 
So I drove up to Atasquin, Alberta, and frankly, I just went to a public phone. For those of you who don't know what that is, Google it. Uh, uh, I went to a public phone and got a public phone book and just started dialing up Feetzes. Uh, first couple of calls, I, I didn't get an answer. Uh, and the third or fourth call, I got a woman, uh, Myrna Feetz. It was listed under Bill Feetz. I was calling for Bill. She indicated that Bill had died about three years prior, but I could come over and she would help me plug into some relatives. So I went on over to uh, Myrna's house and uh, sat there while she got on the phone. And every time she called somebody, she said, guess who this is? And then kind of went on to say this American cousin had just kind of showed up and would they like to meet him. And so I eventually ended up meeting my great aunt Martha, um, who looked a lot like my grandfather in a dress. It was a little unnerving. <laughs> and, and who said repeatedly, if I'd known you was coming, I would have made something. Uh, I met my great aunt Meta, who was married to a man named Ferdinand Schmuland. And the rest of the family could not stand Schmuland, as they called him. He was this obnoxious fellow who had nonetheless discovered oil on his property, and he was filthy rich, and they hated him all the more because of that. It was just this fascinating thing. Um, I found out from them something I already knew, because they said every time somebody saw me for the first time, what they said was, oh, he don't look like a feats. Don't look like a feats. It's true. I don't look like a feats. Uh, I look like my mother's side of the family. And uh, the other thing I found out that was a little bit stunning is that my father's cousin Bill, who had died three years earlier, had died by his own hand. And his wife, his widow, Myrna, had spoken to no one in the family in three years. That's why every time she picked up the phone, she said, guess who this is? Because, you see, everybody else in the family knew how he had died, and they knew that she couldn't admit it. They knew that she was saying that it was some other, it wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't him. It wasn't him, it was something else. And so they hadn't spoken. There was this sense of uh, denial, this sense of shame, this sense, this sense that persisted, and the whole story had not really been discussed amongst all these people. That's the part of the story that makes the story more of the whole story. And of course, that's not the whole story because they've persisted as a family for 32 years since and I haven't been in touch for 20-some of those years. And who knows how that dynamic continues to operate in the family, but I know that it can. It's not the whole story, but it is the kind of story that many of us, many people, don't tell. Maybe you know a story like that. Grief is a difficult thing. Grief is one of the most difficult things we deal with, and we'll be talking more about it in the next couple of Sundays. But when shame and guilt are added in, it can become particularly difficult. And too often, silence is the result. There is such thing in life as a, uh, a discomfort with other people's despair. We just aren't sure what to do with it. And that discomfort can grow to the point where we are silent, even and maybe especially when that despair gets to the place where the person who feels it isn't sure they can continue, isn't sure that they want to live. It is the despair that Job 
names in the passage that was read here this morning, right? Why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? He not only wants to die, he wishes he'd never lived. He despairs of the value of his entire life. It's a difficult thing. But I also think it's a difficult thing that is reflective of the experience of more people than we may know. We, uh, we remember from last week his response, his, his losses, all the things that Bonnie named when she read the scripture, the loss of all his property and all his employees and all his children and his health, just that unfathomable compounding of grief upon grief upon grief. And yet we remember he has this stoic response, this response that we sing in songs, right? Whatever's going on, blessed be the name of the Lord. And for a lot of situations, that is a good response. There are probably times when, you know, uh, uh, difficult traffic or spilled milk or a bad day can lead to an overly emotional response and the perspective that says, you know what, I can praise God even through this traffic jam, even through this spilled, I spilled coffee the other day, I was not happy. Um, and yet the ability to be able to say, you know what, it's not that bad, is, is, an, is an advisable thing. There is a place for that response to a lot of the difficulties of our lives. But if we were to give that response to somebody who was despairing about a life that felt ruined, right? If somebody was absolutely despairing to say that uh, we should accept both the good and the bad and blessed be the name of the Lord could sound like spiritual cruelty to somebody in that state. And yet Job has said it to himself, and he has said it to his wife, who is not in the same place, right? When the book of James talks about the patience of Job, this is the version of Job that James is talking about. But you heard that shift, right, to today's passage. This is what goes on in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But in chapter 3, Job's response is suddenly very different. This despair, not only of his situation, but of his entire life. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come forth and expire? This absolute despair, there it is in Scripture. He is not stoic here. He is not philosophical about his suffering. He is asking one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult questions that could be asked, why? It's hard enough when your five-year-old says, why is the sky blue? It is so much harder when somebody asks, why am I even alive? What is the point? What is the purpose? But if we are able to listen to Job, if we don't shrink away, if we don't give in to our discomfort with this level of despair, I think that we might gain some insight into those who struggle 
with despair in their lives, who struggle with mental illness in the broad sense of, of depressive emotions and in the particular sense of somebody who despairs of the whole point of their lives. Job is not planning suicide, but his mindset, I think, I suspect, can give us an insight into despair. And I think he does so in a way that is remarkably relevant. It's just amazing to me to read through Job, and at least for me to say, oh, wow. For many people whose life has become so difficult, existence equals suffering. Just being becomes a matter of suffering. It's how Job feels as well. Why is light given to one in misery and life to the bitter soul? I, I am so bitter, I am so miserable, I am so, dis- in, so much in despair that simply existing means suffering. That's the equation that has gone on for him. And we can understand that because of what he has lost. This is more than a hard day. This is more than a sad feeling. This is someone who is overwhelmed by the difficulties of life. For people who are living out this equation, there is no more frightening verse than when we've been there for 10,000 years. Because when you equate existence with suffering, then 10,000 years of existence sounds like 10,000 years of suffering. That's why, generally speaking, when we sing Amazing Grace, I don't pick that verse. Because I don't know who in the room is in that place. My thing, maybe. And you know, when existence equals suffering, we shouldn't be surprised that death is seen as the end of suffering. In death, the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. When existence feels like nothing but pain, then to not be is to no longer suffer. This is the state. People who are in this state do not want to end their lives. They want to end their suffering. But they've gotten to a place where the only way it feels like suffering can end is that life has to end. Because, listen to Job, they feel like they have no choices. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? Do you hear that language? Job cannot see a way out. Job cannot see himself having any other choices. For him, life is suffering. Death is the one relief from that. He feels fenced in. No other choices. It is a profound 2,500-year-old psychological insight. The point of view that feels 
as though there are no choices. There is no relief from a suffering existence. It may not be an accurate point of view, right? Probably there are choices. Probably there is value. Probably there is purpose. But it is uh, uh, something for which we need compassion to understand that people get to a place for various reasons where they cannot see those choices. Where that value has vanished. They do not want to end their lives. They want to end their pain. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. It is the desperate desire for rest. My guess is most of us have known that on a more daily, superficial level. Maybe it was once upon a time when we had responsibility for a three-year-old. We could find ourselves desperate for a nap, for rest. This is that same impulse on an existential level. The desperate need for rest and for relief. I was pastor of First Christian Church in Reading for seven years. It was my first time being a pastor. I was up there. I was 20-something. I, had, I, I knew nothing. Uh, and I knew a lot less than I thought I knew. But one of the good things about that church is we had a member uh, who was uh, a funeral director. And so the first several dozen funerals that I did were for people I didn't know, people who came to their mortuary and needed uh, a pastor needed somebody to conduct a memorial service. So the first suicide service I ever did was for a young man. He was 19 years old. He'd had a particularly harsh argument with the mother of his infant daughter. And he had died by his own hand. And when I sat down with the family, they said to me, we don't want you saying anything about how he died. So I was like 27. I went with it. I mean, I thought I hinted around, you know, I, I, in the prayers and in what I said, I talked about God's mercy and how God understands and God knows and God receives. And I said all those things that I thought were kind of sub rosa, kind of getting at what the real issue was while avoiding the real issue. Afterwards, after the graveside service, there was a man who had come to it who knew me through other things. He was a member of another church and knew me through some interchurch things. And he came up and he said to me, uh, Pastor, it's too bad that poor boy is in hell. And that was the moment where I decided I was never going to cover up. I was never going to help a family who was feeling shame and guilt not speak the truth about how their loved one had died because that equation needed to be made, stated in public. And to do otherwise was spiritual neglect. Now, fortunately, I've never had to be confronted about that. I've done other suicide uh, services. Uh, and by the way, I don't like the term suicide. It means self-murder. 
you know, and we've had it be a crime for so long. I, I don't know a, a good way around it, but I don't like that word. I've done other services for other families who were always, every one of them, prepared to tell the truth. It is a painful, painful thing. But God bless them in their courage for being able to overcome the sense of guilt and shame and other negative feelings that we surround this particular issue with. The truth is the church has offered, parts of the church have offered too much judgment and too little compassion. And when you read the literature, one of the things that is regularly condemned are pastors that are silent on the issue, who don't say something in public. So... Right? Here we are. Not because of me, but because of Job. So it's worthwhile to ask, how shall the church respond? How shall we as Christians respond? And the first thing, uh, this again, not me, this is out of the literature, is to take mental health seriously. Take mental health as seriously as we take physical health or spiritual well-being. So often mental health is, is precisely the same issue. People are diabetic because chemicals have gone wrong in their body. People struggle with mental health because chemicals have gone wrong in their body. And yet somehow we attach shame to issues of mental health, right? From a spiritual and compassionate, not condescending point of view, we need to take mental health seriously. Uh, Not just because there are people in our midst who are despairing, but because each one of us probably has times in our lives where we struggle with issues of mental health. And the shame and the guilt that can sometimes be attached to that. What that will mean as we do is that we are breaking silence. Because silence is the form that shame and guilt so often take. And when we break that silence, then we are able to relieve the shame of those who have felt that they had to be silent, that they had to come to church and present a brave face, for example, and not admit to what was really going on. It may mean, it may mean the church also has to confess its sins. The ways in which we have helped enable shame and guilt. The ways in which we have literally demonized issues of mental health. Hmm? Maybe we might have to make that part of the situation as well. Regarding those who despair is at such a level that they feel they need to stop living. I think it's important for us to recognize that we have some power. We have some ability to help. It may feel as though it is beyond our uh, skills. But there are very basic things that we can do. One of them is to listen without judgment. To listen without saying that somebody's feelings are wrong. Hmm? To listen. To help people feel heard in general is a blessing. You probably know that. You've probably had some time in your life where you just needed to be heard. And somebody was able to do that. Hopefully, you have somebody in your life who is regularly able to do that. We all need that, but people who are in despair particularly need to be heard without judgment. 
If you suspect, you have a handout that addresses these things. If you suspect that somebody may be despairing of their life, maybe despairing to the point where they don't want to live, and maybe thinking about taking the only choice they think they have, then it's important to ask. Are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about suicide? And if the answer is yes, or maybe, or kind of, or sometimes, or you know what I'm getting at, then we need to take more concrete steps, and one of those is simply to remove the means. Are you hoarding your meds? Do you have a firearm in the house? Let's secure those things. Let's get those things out of your hand. And then, and again, you have some printed material that you've been given on this. It's important to stay with somebody, to be with somebody, when they are at that edge. It's also important to recognize our limits, right? We aren't able to take care of everything. And so part of what that means is, the advice is, avoid debating the value of life with somebody who does not see any value in their life. You can let them know you care about them, you're concerned for them, but if we get into an argument about how life really is wonderful, when somebody may be chemically informed that it is otherwise, that's a debate we're going to lose. It's not going to help. We don't need to talk somebody back into life. That is beyond my skill level. I suspect it's beyond the skill level of all of us. And so it simply means this very obvious and simple thing, seek help. You have that handout that uh, tells you the number to call or the website to go to. There are a number of organizations that are geared for this, who know how to handle it, who know how to deal with it. Let them help. Not his real name. For most of his life, Bert was able to cope because Something would go wrong, but something would go right. If, if work was a disaster, if his boss was hassling him, if it seemed to have lost purpose, if it was muddled up in conflict, he could count on his family to be supportive. And in those moments where somehow family went wrong, he was able to uh, uh, find meaning in his work. But he came to a place where all of a sudden work was going wrong and family was falling apart. And he began to have this belief, this thing that cycled through his head that everyone would be better off if he weren't around anymore. His preferred method, the thing that he thought about the most, the plan that he ran through his head the most, was that single car, that single person accident. Because probably then his family could get the insurance. And he kind of lived there for a while and thought about dying there for a while. And somehow, at some place, he doesn't tell the whole story of this. He found himself coming out of a meeting with a friend named Mark. And they, standing in the parking lot, as we do sometimes, fell into a more serious conversation about who felt what. And Mark simply listened without judgment offered his sense that it must feel 
horrible to feel the way Bert did, offered to be with him, offered to help him, and somehow in all that, Bert found out, figured out that he wasn't isolated, that he wasn't alone. One of the great lies of our existence is that whatever we're going through, we're going through by ourselves. And inevitably, there is somebody out there who is also, there are a lot of people out there who are also going through the same thing. In making that discovery, and with the help of Mark and other people, Bert got some decent, good, capable counseling that led to a, a, an understanding and compassionate MD who was able to figure out some meds that helped him get to an even place so that he could survive the loss of his job and the loss of his marriage and could even reform that life to where he could offer counsel to others. Now, for a lot of people, the arc of that story is not always so clean. For a lot of people, there is still enormous struggle. Uh, the meds don't always work. Uh, the counselors or doctors aren't always completely understanding, and, and uh, uh, people get to a better place, but they really don't get to a fully healthy place, and we need to understand there's still a lot of struggle. The arc is not always that tidy. But there are stories out there that are not fully told that we need to be aware of, open to, ready to hear. And honestly, I would say if anybody in this room is feeling like, Joe, please talk to me, talk to somebody, talk to somebody. And if you think there's somebody in your life, please listen without judgment and with compassion. Because... God can guide us into saving lives that way. Blessed be the name of the Lord.